0: You're listening to Straight Shooters, a straightforward golf podcast that'll straighten out your game. And here are your hosts, Keith Bennett and Henry Statina.
1: Okay, everybody, welcome back to the Straight Shooters podcast. I am Keith Bennett and joined by our co-host, Henry Statina. And we have an awesome guest on the show today. Somebody that I've been really looking forward to talking to um, once I discovered his his lost art, the Lost Art series of books. A couple of years back, I started with the Lost Art of playing golf, and we'll get into that a little bit more. But Carl Morris, uh, the host of the Brain Booster podcast, he's got certification series across the across the world. Just just an awesome guy to be talking to about all things golf. So, Carl, welcome to the show, and uh, really looking forward to chatting.
2: Thanks, Keith. It's uh, after after such a big build up there. I'm nervous about what I've got to say now. <laughs> no, looking forward to it. Thanks, thanks, guys, for inviting me.
1: Absolutely. Um, hey, so for our listeners who aren't super familiarized with you yet, hopefully they will be uh, more after this. Uh, give us, you know, the two to three minute kind of background on on how you got into golf, what your background was. Did, did you come up playing as a junior? Did you know uh, were there professional aspirations? And and then kind of you know how did the book series kind of come about?
2: Yeah. I mean, the, uh, the, the short version of a, of a very long story, um, which I'm sure you want the short one is <laughs> that I, I was a, I was a pretty promising well I was a very promising junior in the sense that I, I took up the game relatively late. I think I was about uh, 14 and a half, something like that. When I, when I took up the game, because I'd, I'd, I'd played cricket and football and all the other sports. And I was pretty much self-taught really. And within Within twelve or just over twelve months after starting to play golf, I actually shot level par in a in a, in, a, in a in a competition in a, in a tournament. It was it was kind of like I thought it was golf was the easiest game in the world. Really, I used to just stand there and 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 hit an, a lovely little draw on every shot, and it was pretty pretty good with a with a putter in my hand. And I thought, what, you know, what a wonderful easy game. And after I'd had that little bit of early success, a few people said to me, "Well, you you know you've done really well in such a short period of time." What you need to do is, uh, if you get some lessons, you know, you could you could really make some progress with the game, and uh, all that all that early promise then turned into about twenty years of complete and utter frustration and a and a downward spiral, where I, I just I just got I, I had some reasonable successes, but not ne- never got anywhere near what I, what I thought I was capable of. You know, I definitely did want to play play the game on tour, like like you know most most professionals at some point they, they want to make a living from the game but I was spectacularly unsuccessful at that. And I, and I look back now and I just, I just fell into the trap of, of believing that all the answers for me as a golfer lay in technical perfection. I got very obsessed about how the golf swing looked. You know, I spent hours and hours in front of mirrors and videos and all that kind of stuff. And in the end, I really just couldn't play the game. I, I mean, I got, I got to a point where I didn't know whether it was going to go 60 yards right or 60 yards left. Uh, and then what did I do? I, I thought, well, look, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to make it as a player. Let's teach. So I, you know, I'd got into the PGA and done my, done my apprenticeship and done all the training and everything like that. And, and uh, what, what I did was uh, I started to teach. I started to uh, coach other people in things that hadn't worked for me, which I look now is the great was the greatest lunacy ever, you know, and, and, and Fred, Fred Shoemaker, a big influence on me. you know. I, this was later on in the journey, he, he, he said, I'll never forget him saying, he said, be very careful, he said, he said, don't pass on to others what didn't work for you. And that was like a dagger through my heart, really, because I thought, my goodness, you know, I've, I've charged people for this nonsense for, for, for 10 years. And, it, and, you know, I, I couldn't blame myself. So it was at that point that I really became much more interested in the learning aspects of the game, what's getting in the way of people making golf swings on the golf course and playing up to the potential because, you know, the human, the human system has evolved to do some pretty clever things over billions of years. And yet we just tie ourselves in knots with, with the game of golf. And um, I got lucky with, with a few players that I worked with in the early days, you know, players like Darren Clark and Lee Westwood and, and Graham McDowell. And they had some successes. And, and I think it was, it was really a result of my failures as a, as a player, my complete failure as a player that I was actually able to kind of get into the mind of where some of these players were perhaps going wrong and getting too far down the, down the technical route. That you know, and, and, and as we as we say in the in the books that uh, wrote with Gary Nichol, the, you know, the Lost Art series, we don't, we're, not, we're not saying technique doesn't have any place. We're not saying science that doesn't have any place. Of course it does, but the balance seems to have tipped so far down the scientific route. And you know, the story that I've just related. I would think there'll be quite a few of your listeners nodding away thinking that's exactly the route that I've been down. You know, I was, I was pretty, I was pretty good until I got, uh, I got sentenced to swing prison and I've not been, not been able to get out of there.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, one of the, and I'm sitting here nodding away because, and I I know Henry and I have talked about this too. We can both relate to this exact same thing, you know, and, and it's funny how those, those things kind of take you out of that, that childlike, that, that playfulness of just getting the golf ball in the hole. And, you know, those late summer evenings of the sun setting, it's warm. You're out there on the golf course by yourself. You're imagining your, your Seve or your tiger or Jack, you know, out on, you know, on the 18th, coming to close out a major championship. And, how quickly as adults, we think, okay, you know, that's all well and good, but it's time to kind of make this pattern a little bit better and, and, you know, refine things a little bit more. Um, And you have a great piece in your book on how, you know, you know, Sevi got, you know, lost his artistry kind of doing that. But one of the main things that just hammered home for me when reading your books was that this whole concept of, does the swing create the shot. Or does the shot create the swing? And I would love for you to kind of expand on that a little bit because I think that's just huge for our listeners to kind of understand the difference there.
2: Well, and there's and there's two schools of thought, isn't there? That you know, I I I went originally down the school of thought that was if you could just put your body in all of these certain positions, if you could just get to P one and P three and all that kind of stuff, and get your body moving in a in a in a perfect way that you'll be able to produce produce shots well you know after a long fruitless search at that it it it, it really struck me that we we've, we've got the, the thing the wrong way around you know if you if you if you look at it in most other sports it doesn't it doesn't work that way you know most people have a reasonable idea that if the basket's there they're, they're trying to throw the ball into the basket and they'll respond reasonably well. they, they don't make the basket every time but they respond pretty well to that but when you look at it does the shot create the swing, or does the swing create the shot? To me, when you start with the shot creating the swing, magic can happen. Because to me, every single golf lesson, if you're working with somebody, should start with the, with the premise of what shot, what, once you get playing and you you, know, you pass the beginner stage, what shots are you trying to play? What are you trying to do with the golf ball? Because as we understand from the motor learning research, is that your body will organize movement around a clear intention. You know, if you have a clear intention to move the ball from right to left, your body will organize movement to get that done. Now, if you have really poor concepts of what to do to produce a draw, well, that's where the coach comes in. That's where it becomes a wonderful collaboration then, whereby the coach is starting from the premise of, this guy is trying to move the ball in a certain way. Okay, what do we need to do to assist him to help that? But all of a sudden, instead of just endlessly looking at the positions in the swing, now we're looking at the only thing that really matters in golf is what we're actually trying to do with the golf ball. And all of a sudden, you know, when you do that, your creative element comes in, the natural ability that the body possesses to move things in certain ways, to move objects, to targets, kicks in. So I just think it's, it's, a, it's a completely sort of 180 shift from the swing producing the shot to the shot producing the swing. But if you think about it, you know, you'll have experienced this. You can even get relatively high handicap golfers who can be on the golf course. And when they're in, when they're in trouble, you know, they have to hit the ball low under the trees or they have to bend the ball around the trees to get back in play. Even relatively, you know, inexperienced golfers are able to do that a lot of the time because the golf course is creating a very clear intention of what they need to do with the golf ball so i think you know my my dream of the future is that is that we actually create situations where we give a little bit more credit to the genius that the body that the body is you know we give a little bit more credit in a, in a coach student relationship that this, this guy or this girl can find a way with some guidance of producing certain movements that will result in certain shots. And then it becomes a joy because then you can take the shots out onto the golf course, rather than trying to take a swing out onto the golf course, which is a completely different thing altogether.
0: Yeah, I
1: mean, yeah, go ahead, Henry.
0: That that story completely resonates with me. Um, I grew up playing golf at a very young age and uh, I continued to progress as I continued to grow and get stronger and hit the ball further. And then as I became an adult, I stopped growing and and I stopped improving at the game, and so I turned to golf instruction more heavily, and, and obviously a lot of it had to do with swing instruction and technique, and ultimately went down the rabbit hole like you uh, had done, and, and I quit the game for for 18 months, um, completely wow. frustrated with it, and and throughout that time frame I uh, continued to study uh, the works of of. Uh, Dr. Bob Rotella and Manuel Dilatori and some of these instructors who have very different ways of thinking from the norm. And um, I I really appreciate what you've said uh, from what you learned from Fred Shoemaker, that we we, we don't need to pass on to others uh, what didn't work for us and that the body will learn to organize the body movement uh, based on the the shot intention, something that that, uh, I've always been curious about is how players will find themselves deep in the trees and be able to execute a shot tremendously with very few options and a very clear intention as to how to escape versus that of being in the fairway when the the, the shot options are endless and they either can't seem to see the shot or they can't seem to decide on which shot to play.
2: You know, it's sending shivers down my spine with this because it's just I'm so passionate about it. And I think it's such an important subject because we seem to be going more and more down the technical route, if anything. And, and, and I think, you know, golf is golf is at a tremendous crossroads now because the game as a result of a global pandemic has been given the most amazing shot in the arm because participation, I don't, I'm sure it's the same in the States, but all over Europe participation was falling and falling and falling. A lot of people were moving away from the game of golf and then, as a result of the fact that for a period of time when all our liberties were taken away, we couldn't do hardly anything. And golf was one of the first things that we could do, you know, when the restrictions started to lift. And, you know, I'm sure it's the same in, in, over where you are that all of a sudden, golf club memberships were getting filled again, the participation levels went up, young people were starting to play. Now, the thing is, hopefully, as things do get back to normal, golf is at that crossroads of can it retain those new players? Now, if you think about it, what, what do humans do? They, they continue to do things that they really enjoy. They stop doing things that they don't enjoy. You know, and one of the, one of the um, guys who's been on my podcast, a, a good, good friend of mine, Marcus Westerberg, who's a Swedish golf coach, he, he did an extensive survey in Sweden pre-pandemic to find out why so many people were leaving the game of golf. And you know, we've all been led to believe it's about time, it's about accessibility and all of those things. But he found that the number one reason why Swedish golfers were not playing anymore is they didn't think they were good enough. Somewhere along the, li- somewhere along the line, they'd, they'd, they'd got this impression that they were not good enough to play the game of golf. And, and as you described, Henry, they, they, you know, they, they went away from it because they were not getting pleasure out of it. Now then back to the, back to the point of, of what we're talking about here with being lost in swing prison. Is that think about all the incredible things that humans being human beings do, based around a clear intention. We've evolved as creatures to use tools and implements. If you think about that, we've survived as a species by using tools and implements. You know, in, in from caveman days, throwing throwing objects to targets, spears, using hammers, all that kind of thing. It's it's kind of like wired into us, I believe, to, to be able to use you know, implements to get a job done. Think about what everybody will have done this morning when they got up, they will have brushed the teeth. Well, they may have used an electric toothbrush, but those people are still doing it the old fashioned way. <laughs> you know, we, 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 can, we can perform a really quite a complex skill brushing our teeth. Now, if you think about it, how did you learn to brush your teeth? Did you learn to brush your teeth by rotating your elbow over a fixed axis? Or did you learn to use the brush? You learned to use the brush. You learn to use the tool to produce a particular result. You know, put the paste on the, on the, on the, on the brush and, and brush all of your teeth. You know, we can, we can most people are reasonably adept with a, with a hammer, with a bit of practice. You know, how do you learn to drive a car? You don't learn to drive a car by rocking your shoulders from side to side. You learn to use the wheel. So when you start to think about this, most things that we do well start with an intention. I want to knock this nail in with this hammer, okay? My body will organize movement around that. You know, there might be a few bruises on the thumbs if it's a complete novice with a hammer, but most people will get the job done after a period of time. And then you think about, well, what do we do with golf? We don't don't actually start with the end. You know, there's a great phrase in one of Stephen Covey's books from many years ago, begin with the end in mind. You know, what is the end in mind? I want the hammer to go into the wood. Okay, I, we can work back from that. What is the end in, in mind in golf? The end is a golf shot. We should be, we should be starting with a golf shot and working backwards. We, we, with golf, we don't do that. We, we, we jump into the action, and, and the action gets all of the attention. When I think when, when people have an understanding that having a clear intention for what you're trying to do with the golf ball, an understanding of how to use the implement in your hand, Manuel de de la Torre that you you mentioned there. And, you know, that's basically all he taught is how to use the golf club. And it it sounds a crazy thing to say that, you know, how to use the golf club. We must be the only sport that I can think of that where most golfers are completely disassociated with the implement in the hand. They're thinking about almost anything other than the tool that they've got in the hand, which is their design to produce the shots that you want.
1: Yeah, Sorry you know, I that. think. Sorry for that rant. No, I got to be
2: carried away. There.
1: <laughs> there's so many things I could take from that. It's just incredible. I think something that comes to mind was you know something that Manuel would do, which you know, if somebody was asking too many things about you know how the body works to swing the club, he would you know he would take the club out of their hands and say you know hit me that golf shot, you know as a yeah. as just a, a way to emphasize the point that you you know the golf club is the thing moving this golf ball and how you move that golf club is going to determine what that golf ball does. Uh, And I just, you know, something else you said there was start with the end in mind. I, you know, I sent a video to Henry of a student who sent me an online lesson last week. And it was a three minute video of him just hitting shots. And I go, look at this guy practicing. He never looks up once. He never stands behind the golf ball. He never takes the time to imagine what a good shot would look like. So in my mind, I go, well, you know, if, if I don't even see the ball flight, How do I know where to put the ball in my stance? How do I know where to angle the golf club? How do I know what to do with the face at impact? How do I know what to do with the the path? Like, I, I can't even build a setup myself as a golfer at this point in my career without standing back and seeing what I want the ball to do. Otherwise, it's just like you said, just standing there and whacking shots. And something that really, again, resonated with me in your book is this idea of asking questions. You know, is it possible to hit a good shot? And what would a good shot look and feel like right now. And, and that right there, really, you know, I, I took that into my teaching and, and I've really taken that to heart. So expand on the whole, like, why is it so important to ask questions uh, of yourself as a golfer?
2: One of the most important things I, I think that anybody wants to get better at almost anything, Keith, is to understand the role that attention plays. You know, basically what we put our attention on Will, will determine our effectiveness in life. And not only just in golf, if you want to learn something, where you put your attention is a, is a critical factor. Uh, the, the next thing that leads on from that is, okay, if, if, I, want, if I want my attention in a certain place, what is, it, what is a good way of holding the attention? Well, if I said to everybody now, listening to this podcast, what does your, what does your car look like? I guarantee everybody will have just had a flashing image across the, across the screen of the mind of, of you know what, what the car looks like, what the color is, what the shape is, what, what the model. The key understanding is that, is that questions create images and, and questions focus our attention. So you know, I'll often say to golfers, you, 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 could, you could pretty much sum up the mental game by just understanding the value of asking good questions. If you ask good questions, your brain will. Your, your brain is a is a question answering machine, but many golfers ask you know ask dreadful questions. You know you'll get a golfer who'll stand on the tee and go, "Where's the trouble here?" You know, and you think, "Well, okay, well, what's what's that going to focus your attention <coughs>
1: on?" Yeah. You know,
2: but you know the, the for again for anybody anybody listening to, to, to your, your podcast, if you think about it, if I said to all of you now, imagine that you're on your home golf course. And pick a particular hole on your home golf course, and imagine that you're on the tee. And if I said, "Well, what do you see to the left?", you'll see certain things to the left. What do you see to the right? You'll see whatever's to the right. Now, if I said to everybody, "What does a good golf? Shot, what does a good shot look like here?", now I guarantee the only way that you can answer that question is that you will see an image in your mind of a good golf shot. There's a there's a presupposition in the question. What does a good golf shot look like? Now, here's where I think that the, the magic can happen. Is that everybody? Everybody says that golf is a difficult sport because it's not reactive. You know that you react to a baseball being thrown at you, you. You know you react to a football being kicked to you. Well, actually, golf is a reactive sport. You react to the images in your head before you step into the shot. Not mm-hmm. enough people. Can, not enough people consider that when they when they're playing golf. They've got so much stuff going on about how to move the body, but actually your body will move, behave much more efficiently and much more productively if you understand that it, it responds to images. Now, if you ask yourself the question, what does a good golf shot look like here? And you can see a shape of a, of a, of a shot on the hole that you're playing. And then you can, as Manuel would say, you know, if you can get, then get a, a feeling of, of, of the, the movement, that the if you can get a feeling of what the golf club needs to do to produce that shot, I think that you're then linking it an image of the shot to a feel of a golf swing, now, now your brain and body are united. They've actually got an opportunity to step into that and let the genius of the body do its work. Does it mean that every shot's going to work out perfectly? hundred percent no. But I'll tell you what, the golf, the game of golf that you could play in the future, in the season ahead of you, could be completely different if you maybe start to approach it this way where you just tap into the artistry that resides in everybody and you understand the role of attention and you understand the role of, of questions and it it almost sounds too simple but you know we we, we were we were just chatting on her I mean I've, I've just seen before we start, you know I've just seen so many players and so many coaches really respond to this you know Randy Joyner has been on, on my podcast a couple of times you, you guys have heard that in the States you know is just getting some amazing results with with young players with you know, players of all levels, getting them on the golf course, responding to asking good questions.
0: Yeah, exactly. You bring up a a really interesting topic about visualization and and mental pictures and focusing our attention on the intention. I'm curious Mm -hmm. to know which of that seems the most new for the amateur golfers that you tend to work with. Is it uh focusing their attention on the intention or is it maintaining their attention for the duration of the swing and how do you go about training a person to improve those two very very valuable aspects of making a good golf shot
2: yeah i think that the two are so interlinked henry that you know i think that for a lot of players a lot of students that I've worked with the the understanding the role of questions is a big breakthrough for them it just you know it just it really resonates because they can they can relate it to other things in life that, that you know if you go into a if you if you're sat in, the, in one of the finest restaurants in New York and somebody says what's wrong with this place you know your brain's going to go in search of what's wrong with it. it'll find it so when, when you understand the role of questions that's a big breakthrough but then I think the idea of being able to keep your attention on something for the duration of the swing, I think that then is, a, is another skill level altogether. You know, again, quoting Fred Shoemaker, as Fred has often said, he said it's pretty unlikely that most golfers have been able to keep their attention in one place for the whole duration of a golf swing at any point in their life because the mind tends to jump around and it sounds a ridiculous thing to say that something that's over within a split second, but our mind does tend to flit around and, this, and it will, it will flit around more than ever. If it's littered with swing thoughts, one of the big problems with swing thoughts on the golf course is if you have a let's say you have a takeaway swing thought. Okay. So your, 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 your attention is on moving the club in the takeaway. Now the thing is it, it it can get that job done but then where does it go for the rest of the swing then all of a sudden you've got a huge gap now usually what you find with swing thoughts is that the further they the further the swing thought is in the swing the more dangerous it tends to be you know if you're trying to work on on, on something at the top of the backswing. And certainly if you started trying to work on what your body's doing coming into impact, those are pretty tough things to actually take onto the golf course. And I, and I don't think I'm unique in saying this. I, w- I would imagine that most people have had that experience that taking swing thoughts are actually really difficult things to do to take onto the course. Why is that? Well, it seems that you know if you give the mind the space, it will jump around. What do we know? anecdotally of thoughts that that seem to work really well for most golfers is is things like rhythm and timing and tempo well rhythm is a different focus because you're focusing more on the whole movement you focus it's like a global thought if you like rather than an isolated thought you know one of the things that that fred always said that you know can you can you keep your attention on the club head all the way through the swing you know for everybody listening that it seems the simplest thing in the world but go ahead and try it. And you'll, again, you'll find that magic can happen because what that does, it allows you to keep your attention in one place for the duration of the swing, but you start to become more finely tuned, again, to the implement in your hand. So, you know, all these things, all these strands hopefully link together at some point to some, some pretty simple things that people can do.
1: Now, I want to I go back to that, you know, singular focus of focusing on the club head for the duration of the swing. And again, like you said, it sounds so simple, but you could probably pull as many golfers as you want, and and a bulk majority of them would answer that they've never even considered doing that. Um, and how might somebody who's interested in that thought experiment and that focus experiment how might they how might they start doing it compared to what you see, how you see people try to do it as far as you know yeah. how they go about it?
2: I'll just give you um. A, a story Keith on, on that one that hopefully give people a bit of a bit of an insight. Does, does the, the podcast, is it, is it just a podcast or pe- do people see the video as well?
1: Uh, just audio.
2: Just audio. Perfect. Okay. So I won't, I won't try and demonstrate anything on the video then. So it, in answer to the question, um, a few years ago I was in, uh, I was in China doing some mind factor certification for the, some coaches out there, you know, pre-pandemic, it was, a, it was a wonderful experience. But I'll never forget what happened one afternoon. We were with a bunch of uh, young Chinese coaches aiming to, to teach beginners. Now, my, my Mandarin is not particularly extensive, so th- there was a bit of a language barrier, really. We were struggling sort of understanding uh, anything that we, we, we were trying to do. And I, just out of frustration this after, this one afternoon, I came up with this, this concept and the, the Chinese players still get in touch with me now uh, and, and still report back. And they still say, we're still trying to join the dots. And basically what I did was just with the club face, because these were beginning golfers. Um, I, I drew a, a big red dot on the middle of the club face. And then I put um, a big red dot in, in, the, in the middle of a couple of golf balls. And what we did was to, is to say to the, the young, young players, they have some basics. Okay. Now, uh, what I want you to do is very simply swing the club and I want you to join the dots. So there was a dot on the ball and there was a dot on the club. And I will never, ever forget Keith, the experience. Suddenly, the, the, the sound quality, the noise that the balls were making rocketing off the club face, the shots that these, these young kids were producing were unbelievable. And if you think about it, what what, what did they have their attention on? There was an intention to hit the dot with the ball okay there's a, there's a dot in the middle of my club face okay now yeah all i need to do is join the dots so at some level they had their attention on the dot on the club face and their body organized movement around that and it, you know if you imagine it if you've got a dot on the club face and a dot on the ball and they managed to join each other you're gonna get some pretty reasonable shots but these mm-hmm. things were just these things were just rocketing off the club face and there was a grace of movement you know, did any of them stand there and pick the club straight up vertically? Did any of them swing the club around the backside? No, they, they, they were swinging the club on plane without really much formal instruction because it made sense if I've, got this, if I've got this implement that's on an incline and I want to join the dots, it's probably going to make sense that if I swing it somewhere around here rather than mm-hmm. up towards my head or around my backside. So, it, you know, the, the brain is pretty smart if you if back to the clear intention, if you give it that clear intention. But since then, you know, I've done, done so much work around that simple theme of joining the dots, but it seems that for a concentration exercise, when you put a dot in the middle of the club face and, you know, put it on there visually at first so you can actually see it, but it seems the mind can then hold on to that. It can stay connected to the dot longer into the swing. And so that the, the, ability to pay attention to something for the duration of the swing massively increases as a result of that so that would be something i would recommend everybody have a go at and if you struggle just reduce the speed bring the speed down a little bit and see if you can swing at awareness speed you know see if you can swing at a speed where you can stay with the dot through the duration of the swing but as fred has always said you know the the difference really between good players and not so good players, the, the really good players have an awareness of where the club is in space and, and they have a, an ability to present the, the club face in a certain position. That's all we're trying to do. And, you know, we get, we get tied in so many knots of losing that simple principle.
1: That is, I never even thought of that connecting the dots, but I'm just imagining in my own mind that if somebody had that intent to connect the dots, like they probably wouldn't flail that club face open in the backswing they probably wouldn't pull it inside and low and, and they, Honestly, might, even, yeah, they might even, yeah. It might even intuitively go a little slower.
2: Yeah. It, it, it's, it's, it's unbelievable to actually, to actually see it in action. You know, what you just did with your hand there, you know, if you, if you, if you had a, a glove with a club face on it, would, would anybody think if you said to them, right, can you, can you move the glove and hit and hit, if there was a ball was suspended in the air, if you, can you move the glove and hit the ball? Of course you would, be. you'd have no problem doing that. Can you move the glove a little bit to the right? Can you move the glove a little bit to the left? Can you present the club face on the glove to the left, to the right? Nobody would have any problems with that. They would do it instinctively. Now, when you actually think of putting the dot on the club, basically what you're doing is creating an extension from the body to the club where there's an awareness of what the golf club is doing. But then movement organizes beautifully around that simple principle. And it's and you can get really, really good players, really refined movements with this, where well, you know you, you, you're having you know, fine differences in terms of path and face depending on what shots you want to play. But you can still be saying, okay, can you swing the dot a little bit to the right? Can you swing the dot a little bit to the left? Can you swing the little bit the dot a little bit? Whatever, you know, you, you can knock yourself out with the dots, really but it's almost like the biggest leap or the toughest leap for instructors to take is that it sounds too simple. It sounds mm-hmm. too easy. And you know, you know Mike,
0: ahead. sorry, Henry. That, you know, that, that whole conversation is so refreshing. Um, I mean, it seems so intuitive. It's so simple. Like you said, it aligns, you know, as, as best as perfectly as I can imagine, with what the researchers are saying and, and finding in, in the field of motor learning in sports psychology. Um, the psychologists seem to have it. You guys who write the books seem to have a very similar message. It seems clear to me. Um, the tour players, uh, while they don't maybe explain it, they seem to allude to some of these concepts. Um, but amateur golfers are, are, you know, far from having this level of understanding and, and maybe even a lot of instructors, like you mentioned, in that it, it can't be so simple. Well, this question might not even be answerable, but what, where is the disconnect? Why is this not mainstream?
2: It's a great question. Henry, when anybody said it's a great question, it usually means that the person's having to think about the answer to the question, which is, which, is, which but you know, I, I think we could have a whole, we could do the whole podcast on, on this topic alone. I think, you know, you look at, you look at instruction and Mike, Mike Hebron's got a great phrase where he says that something can be intellectually stimulating, but intellectually, or intellectually stimulating, but educationally redundant in the sense that there there is the intellect loves the idea of positions in the swing. The intellect loves the idea of the science in the swing. And then I think there's an ego element as well. And I fell into this trap. If If I look back at the first five, 10 years of my coaching, really what was going on for me is that my ego was so invested in letting people know that I really knew a lot about the golf swing. That was what was going on. It was it was all about real. It was really all about me showing how smart I was, and I'd get videos up and I'd show positions and things like that. And you know, I look back now and I, and I just I close my eyes and I cringe and I think you know I was one of those guys who used to get, you know, I'd get a fifty five year old bloke with a huge beer belly, and 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 I would put Nick Faldo next to him on, on a on a on a video screen and say he should be swinging it like Nick, and you just think. The, the, the two are just, the, 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 there's no resemblance whatsoever between the, those, those two things. It's, it's like north and south. But then I think you look, at, you look at it going forward and how many golf magazines are there? How many, how many golf books are there? There's a huge, huge industry that spawned around the idea that an instructor knows something that you don't. Mm. If, if you think about that, is, is that the, the, the instructor is, is, the, is the one with all the answers and all the secrets. Now, I'm not knocking instruction. There are some wonderful, wonderful coaches. And I do believe everybody who coaches the game of golf is doing it with the best of intention. And, you know, if you're a very technical coach and you get great success with students, I, I would be the last person to, to, to say change but it's just my experience of, of the game. And you guys seem to be sort of nodding and, and backing it up that for most people, that route doesn't really reflect in better golf. And certainly it doesn't reflect in more enjoyment, but there's, but there's, a, there's a, almost a dependency industry being created whereby somebody goes for lessons and they're given the kind of like, you know, the, the hors d'oeuvre of a few positions, and then they've got to work on the next position, and the next position, and the next position, and there's a bit of a dependency created, you know. And, and this is even the case at the very highest level. Um, and I was, I was, I was fortunate, you know. I grew up, and my my heroes were were Seve and Seve Ballesteros and Jack Nicholas. And I always remember Jack Nicholas saying um, at a tournament once, and and he, and he said. I really don't understand these young guys these, these days. He said, they're standing there on the range on a Wednesday afternoon working on the golf swing. What the hell is that all about? They should be, they should be thinking about nothing other than playing golf. And he said, I, I could not thank Jack Grout enough for what he did for my game. He said, Jack Grout made me into a great golfer, but he said, we did it completely differently. You know, I used to just go and see Jack at the beginning of a season and say, Jack, tell me how to play golf. And we went through some basics and then that was it. I would go away and play golf for the season. Then, you know, and, and you know that's the greatest, you know, the greatest tournament professional that's ever played, the, the greatest champion of all time. The, you know, somewhere along the line, we've we you know we've maybe lost some of that wisdom. So, you know, long-winded answer to to a, to a good question is, I think it's a very complex situation where there is a, is a, there's a whole industry been spawned around. The, the intellectualization of the golf swing, the dependency in a way of, of pupil and player, and there's a, there's a, an economic element to it as well. You know that mm. I, I call it I call it McDonald's coaching. You know, <laughs> get, you know, get get 20, 20 slots in your diary and have them coming through and just give them all Big Macs and and and, and away you go. And I, you know, I, I, again, I'm, I know people are coaching better than that, and again, it's with the best intent. But how the hell? can you coach anybody in half an hour you know what can you what can you do beyond just saying all right you're a bit shut at the top or you're doing this or you're doing that you know to me again we are we are the we must be the only sport where many coaches never see the player play
1: yeah can you wow. imagine
2: can you can you imagine a football coach working <laughs> with a team And he never watches a game, but he then says to the team, "Right lads, how did you play last week?" Right.
1: (laughs) I mean, it would (laughs) just—it's—it's
2: laughable, really, isn't it?
1: Yeah. And then relying on them to tell you how they played. Yeah. They—they never give you a straightforward answer.
2: Exactly. I mean, can you imagine the craziness of that? That you know, all the guys are there on on a Monday afternoon telling the telling the football coach how they played on a Saturday in the game. I mean, it's just you—you know—you would. I mean, I, I've, I've had many, many, because um, I work with some other sports, I've had many, many players, good players of other sports saying, do they really do that at golf? And they just can't understand. They can't understand, you know, the way that it's coached. You know, I mean, the other thing, the other thing as well is that, again, we're probably the only sport where we practice in an environment that has got absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with the game itself.
1: Crazy. Yeah, I mean, I I just imagine, uh, you know, Steph Curry, who recently just broke the three-point record, you know, before every game, warming up with his shooting coach on his right shoulder, you know, going through positional, you know, going (laughs) through positions on his three-point release every game. But you see that at the tour level. I've gone to plenty of tournaments, and you see pros lined up down the range. They've got the track bands. They've got the launch monitors. They've got everything. They've got a coach taking video, you know, moments before they go and tee it up. And you just think, how can this guy – or woman go play freely, not attached to the outcome, accepting of the results, taking each shot as a new opportunity. It's just kind of crazy. Um, and, you know, like you just said, and, and I'm, I'm so guilty of this, of this and Henry has said the same thing. We talked about this the other day. We've probably seen 10% of our students play up 18 holes of golf, you know? and And I, and, and I say this every time, students who I invite to pro-ams and pro members and these events I learn so much more about them and I'm so much more prepared to help them with their golf swing when I see them the next time it just wouldn't make any sense to do it any other way. See
2: the thing is Keith it's and and I'm I'm with anybody here who who, you know we've got to pay bills we've got to pay mortgages you know we've got to we've got to earn a living and and all that kind of thing and and there's, there's a huge economic challenge to doing this differently because, you know, the McDonald's route of 20 lessons in a day, half hour slots is, is a very, it's, a, it's almost like an industrial revolution industry in the sense that it's, it's, it's efficient in a mechanistic way,
0: mm. but it's
2: very, it's very inefficient from a humanistic point of view, from a human point of view. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky that the players I, I work with, I, I won't say anything to any player that I work with, until I've walked six holes with them, and I, and I literally don't. don't we, we talk obviously in the six holes. I'm, I'm not. I don't walk around in silence for <laughs> six holes. But I just, I just watch them play golf, and I asked them lots and lots of questions. You know, and so, so many times that you realise that, that, that there's so much more going on with this, with this, with this lady or this, 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 this guy than jumping straight in at the golf swing. Yeah, of course there'll be golf swing things that you might need to work on but understanding their motivations of playing and why they want to play and what they want out of the game and actually seeing, seeing how do they react when the ball's, when, you know, when the wind's off the back and there's out of bounds on the right, how, how do they go about teeing it up and, you know, what are they like around the greens when they've got a bare eye and they've got to chip it over a bunker? And there's so many things that when you watch them just play five or six holes that you can make a huge difference to their game even if they never did anything with the golf swing, you could actually transform the way that they play the game. You know, watching what, what do they aim at? What's the targets that they go for? What are, You know, every, every golfer is aiming at every single flag always, aren't they? You know, the flag's hypnotic. So when you get to give them an understanding of shot dispersion and things like that. So there's a, there's a huge challenge in going in a different route but, you know, and I mentioned Randy before, Randy joined it. He just gets everybody out on the golf course really quickly. And he's, he's just getting some phenomenal results. And, you know, I think we're at a, at a, at a kind of T-junction. Do we, do we keep doing what we kind of instinctively know in our hearts is probably not the best way? Or mm. do we, do we take, take a leap of faith and say, you know what? I'm going to do this slightly differently because not only is it more effective, but actually it's coming from my, my heart in a genuine way as a coach. And I'm going to get much more out of it that way. Yeah.
1: You know, I I had an experience with a golfer who I had a bunch of lessons with on the, on the range and I, I wasn't getting through to him. uh, And he said, his scores were improving. I was like, I got to get shot on the golf course. And we rolled up to this 180 yard par three downhill, and there's a bank on the right side. He's a right-handed golfer, and I asked, I asked him, no, "What shot? What? What do you see here? What are you trying to do?" He goes, "Oh, I'm trying to bank it off that slope because it funnels down to the green." Now this guy was aiming off the green on 180 yard par three, trying to bank it off a slope because it funnels down to the green, and my mind exploded. And I was, yeah. if I, you know, if I had known this ten lessons ago, I, you know, I could have dropped your scoring average by eight shots if I had known that on 180 yard you weren't even aiming at the green and you know knowing what we know about shot patterns and dispersion patterns you know that right there kind of opened my mind to like you know question myself like am I doing this the right way or like you said am I kind of just going about it knowing that I'm not doing it the right way but this is more efficient because they just the, the, the the students show up you give the lesson they leave they show up they give the lesson they leave and like you said it's not as fulfilling you know I you know like I think uh, Shoemaker said it on on your podcast. You know, do I want to be doing something that's endlessly, you know, endlessly fun every day, or do I want my lessons to be endlessly fun or endlessly joyful or you know, kind of endlessly dull or endlessly boring? And I think you know, getting out on the golf course and communicating with these people, seeing what they're doing, why are they hitting that shot? Oh, they're deathly afraid of hitting it right. Oh, there's more room to the right than they realized. You, You actually have room over there. You know, those types of things. And I've had such positive experiences. But like you said, you know, taking that leap of faith to say, "Hey, this is how I'm doing every lesson," uh, mm. you know, like Randy has done, is 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 pretty cool and and uh, something I definitely uh, will be implementing going forward.
2: See, that is a great example, Keith, of, of phenomenal coaching, because you're there with the guy and you you've asked him a simple question. You know, what are you trying to do here? Now, you, you could never ask that question on on the range. You would never, right. you would never get, you would never get the correct not the correct the the truthful feedback that you got in that one moment now in that one moment you asked a great question he gave an answer that blew your mind but actually all of a sudden now the coach player relationship goes to a different level because by understanding if if you think about it you know to me what great golf coaches do or great coaches in in any in any field they, they change two things they change concepts and they change perception You know, what what is what is the concept that you have to hit a draw, to hit a straight shot, to to hit a fade, to hit it high, hit it low? What 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 concept currently resides in in your head? Now, if that if that concept is really poor, you, you can help that player by by helping them adjust that concept. If the perception of the game is hitting it, you know, bringing it in off the bank on the right-hand side of a green at 180 when we know, you know, not even the best players in the world would ever try and do that. You, you, you've, you've helped him. You've shaped the perception. You've changed the perception. Now, we, we can't really do that efficiently on the range. You know, all we've got, oh, the only thing that we've got to really work on on the range is, is the movement, is the golf swing. And you know, if you're going to try and keep the guy keep coming back week after week after week, probably join the dots. is not going to do it. You know what I mean? It's because it's almost yeah. like this, the, the, the the students come with a certain expectation. Oh, you know, I've had people say, oh, you know, I'm such and such a body. He's got launch monitors. He's got this. He's got that. He's got something else. And you think, okay, all well, that's well and good, but did you get better? Are you enjoying the game more? You know, right. because. There's, there's, there's so much of this technology. And, and again, I'm not a Luddite and I'm not knocking all of the technology. I think launch monitors are phenomenal if, if, if used correctly. I think launch monitors are far more of a learning tool than video ever was. I think video destroyed an awful lot of people. But I think we've got to, we've got to keep coming back to what is the intention? You know, what are you actually trying to do? And then does the, does the technology actually support that simple intention or not? Otherwise it's just a lots of, lots of information and, 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 you know, ego stroking, I suppose, by, by, by getting, getting, going down this, the, the whole rabbit hole that we've been discussing.
0: I think us instructors are, are just as much as fault as anybody else. I think uh, growing up playing the game for me personally, I can, I can attest that I had attached my self-worth to my ability to play golf and, And at some point, my ego was uh, hurt when I could not longer play the game at a professional level. And so I transitioned into teaching and and also transitioned my self-worth over to my ability to give golf lessons. And for the most part, most of the information that was available had to do with swing technique and to be on the driving range for half hour or hour at a time. And, And that was all that was known. And To be honest, it seems quite humbling in order to take a different approach, to be more holistic in nature, in uh, treating the golfer as a person and realizing that we're dealing with a whole complex organism, and and the game of golf has so many variables to it that needs to be seen and played out on an ever-changing environment, and that... um, if we want to be successful, we can't take the easy route of giving those half hour or one hour golf lessons. We need to create a more coaching model and be able to experience our players out on the golf course and coach them for what they really are. Um, I think that would go a lot further for our game. And uh, at the end of the day, then we would actually be far more uh situated for helping our players get better because as a golfer i don't think i improved because of the technique as much as i did the hours of experimentation out on the golf course
2: yeah yeah it's it's such a it's such an important point henry and it it is it's it's you know it's it's kind of tough decisions to make isn't it and you know i I come back to the the idea that everybody's doing things with good intention but as you say, the, the ego starts to, you know, look at what most people do with the golf, you know, and I, and I described it and I had this experience that, that you, we start to play the game for pure reasons and, and the pure reasons are we love the experience of being hitting shots and being out on a golf course. And then slowly but surely, if you get better at the game, you get strokes you know people tell you that you're a good player and you can hit the ball a long way and you you know you win some tournaments and the ego gets stroked a little bit more and it becomes an insidious path where we end up if we're not careful playing what i call this for that in the sense that we're playing this game of golf today for something that might happen in the future and mm. so the ego the ego becomes invested in outcomes all of the time and so what happens is that that the outcome of a golf shot can dictate whether you think you have any value as a human being. You know, if you, if you shoot 68, you're a good person. If you shoot 79, you're a bad person. And that is too, that is far too much pressure for any human being to sustain, you know? And I think this is where the, the value of, of great coaching in the future will understand a lot more of these things where it's, it's important with young players to try and, get them to understand that their value as a human is not dependent on the 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 destination a golf ball takes if they have a bad day on the golf course they've had a bad day as a golfer they've not had a bad day as a person but Mm -hmm. i fell into that trap because i didn't have anybody explaining to me those some some of these things and and then as you said henry that you know again i fell into this trap a hundred percent is that my value as a human being was whether players were getting the handicaps down or they were getting on tour or they were winning tournaments or whatever. And then that can become quite a toxic relationship, I think, because, you know, when your ego is invested in whether a player becomes, you know, a tour player or not, you know, all of a sudden there's some things that are not conducive to a a really effective player relationship. So I think having these things out in the open and talking and having forums like your podcast and, You know the opportunity to just discuss. You know the complex issues, aren't they? The the difficult issues to get 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 our heads around. But what do we do? Do we just keep do we just keep doing things that we know doesn't work because it's easy, or do we actually sort of question it and you know take that leap of leap of faith, as you know as as we've talked about tonight, and it and it, it is challenging but surely in life, you know, we're going to get one, we're going to get one go at this. Surely really life is about doing some challenging things because you actually know it's the right thing to do.
1: Wow. Yeah. Taking that leap of faith because you know, it's the right thing to do versus, you know, continuing to do what's easy, even though, you know, it's not going to yield those results. And like you said, that, that ego getting in there and it kind of, I was watching a documentary recently uh, called the Alpinist on Netflix about uh, this guy, Mark Andre, who was a free soloer. he unfortunately passed away. Um, but they were filming a documentary about him and he wouldn't, he wouldn't tell anybody why, where he was going. And because if there was cameras on him, he wouldn't be doing it for the pure reasons of just enjoying the, the climbing of the mountain. You know, it was for somebody else or it was for gratification or somebody to tell him he did a great job. He would do the route. And once he'd done it, he'd allow them to follow him back up it again. Uh, once he'd done it for the right reasons, and you know, you it, it's so it's so hard because once you know all this stuff, how do you you know how do you transition back into that that joyful, playful, unattached to the outcome, accepting of the results? You know, especially like when you you like to take it to the next level and play tournaments and and try to ch- challenge yourself, but but still saying. Like you said, if I shoot 68, hey, I had a good round of golf. I I had a nice process today, versus, yeah, I'm a good, I'm a good person today. Or, you know, vice versa. It's hard to, once you know all this, to put it aside again.
2: I think I mean Tim Galway, you know, he wrote the inner game books in the 70s. It was so far ahead of his time, it was unbelievable. And, you know, in, in the inner game of golf, I think it was rather rather than the inner game of tennis, he talked about. The idea that really what you've got to do is shatter the illusion. And by that he meant was was shatter the illusion that it really meant anything if you shot a good 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 golf score, if you shot a low number. Shatter the illusion that it really means much of anything because it doesn't. And you know, the moments of victory, even winning majors, are over over. It's like a puff of smoke, it appears and then it disappears really quickly. You actually shatter the illusion. And get people to realise that their value as a human being does not depend on what a golf ball does. But then what you do is that you allow yourself to recreate the illusion. So you shatter the illusion, and then you build it up again, and actually say, do "You know what? I'm okay, whatever the outcome is. Now, if I'm okay, whatever the outcome is, do you know what? I'm actually going to, I'm actually going to aim to shoot as low as I possibly can. I'm actually going to aim to win a bunch of tournaments. So mm. it's it's kind of like this, it's kind of like this paradox, really, where you where well, you see through the, the, the illusion of it meaning so much that your ego is attached to it, you shatter that illusion. But then you say, do you know what? I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a great believer that when, when somebody can accept any outcome, and you could, now you could take this on a single put, or you could look at it at a tournament, or look at it at a season. If, if somebody is faced with a put, and they're prepared to deal with any outcome, Now, it's pretty straightforward with a putt. There's only going to be two outcomes. You're either going to knock it in or you're going to miss. Now, if you can accept both of those outcomes 100%, not not phony acceptance, but you're prepared to deal with the ball going in or you're prepared to deal with it missing, then you are free. It's a home run. You are free to actually knock the ball in the hole. You know, you look, at, you look at most of the problems that occur with, with putting, most of the problems occur later on in life. You know, people play as kids, and they're generally pretty good at putting, but as they go further and further down the line, they get worse and worse on the greens for a, lot of, for a lot of golfers. Why is that? It's not because the action is difficult. It's because the ability to deal with the outcome reduces, that the outcome means too much, that they don't want to miss a put. They don't want their ego to be shattered. But it's actually when you see through all of that and um, you can be okay with any outcome that you're actually free to play the game again. So once you're free to play again, well, why not aim to knock it in? Why not, why not aim to, to hit it close? Why not aim to win a tournament? Because you're playing from a different place. Again, Galway talked about something called utmost sincerity. And I think it's a great phrase, you know, utmost sincerity. Is, is really what what what's left when you stop trying to be anything, when you stop trying to be anything in the eyes of other people and you just play in the game for sincere reasons.
1: Yeah. So play,
0: playing playing well, golf at the highest of levels, uh, professional tours, whether they be American or European tours, um, it seems as though that would be the place where ego and self-worth is attached to every single shot. And uh, you have that experience working with those types of players. What kind of role do you or, or any coach really play with working with one of the top tier players, are, are they some of the most humble and serene individuals in golf? Or are they some of the most sick individuals and, and really need to to rely on someone like yourself?
2: Wow. That's a, that's another big question, Henry, that one, isn't it? What, 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 a, what a tour players like, I mean, you get, you get the whole, the whole run of it. I mean, it's a, it is a very, insecure world as we've as we've discussed that that you know all, all the sort of coaches that are out there it, i think can breed a lot of insecurity but but i think you, you know you look at the you look at the players that have been around for a long time and maybe going back in you know going back in time a little bit you know i, I i'm always reminded of, of somebody like arnold palmer that you know right up until the end of his days you know, at Bay Hill, he, he just loved to play golf. He just, he just wanted to be out on the golf course playing golf. And you know, he he had a, he had a joy right up until the end because he never lost sight. I'm sure Arnold never lost sight of the fact that golf was something of a game that gave him tremendous pleasure to move his body in a certain way to to to, to get the job done. And I think, you know, some players lose that, and some some players you know are, are able to maintain it but ultimately i think it's i think it's tough to have a long career if you fall out of the love with the fall, fall out of love with the you know the game itself so i think that's such an important element to keep coming back to and again we've quoted fred all night but you know that that question the biggest question of all is why do i play golf that's a, such an important question for everybody to ask why am i doing this you know and, and you know talking again Um, And when you mentioned top players, you know, to me, and and I've seen it, I've been fortunate enough to work with some major, major winners that you would think if you won a major, you'd be happy forever. Mm. And it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable how quickly that you're not happy because that's, that's the results. The outcomes are just such a temporary thing. They just, they're just here and gone very, very quickly. So what's left when, when, when those things disappear if there's if there's a joy in trying to master a game that you'll never master if there's a joy in creating golf shots the paradox of it all of that is if if you if you have a real joy in creating golf shots guess what that's a that's a pretty good mindset to go and win a whole bunch of tournaments whether you're yeah. whether you PGA tour European tour or, or whatever and i know I know, um, I know Rick Sessinghouse really well um, He's done. He's done. Uh, Colin Morikawa's coach. He's done. He's done my my mind factor co- a course a few years ago, and I think what an in, what an incredible um, job Rick's done with with Colin, and they've been together from you know from, from when Colin was a junior. But I, I don't know the, the relationship in, in great detail. But to me, it seems like Morikawa just has a joy playing the game. He, he seems to be out there creating golf shots and just just immersed in. In, in being on the golf course and 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 solving the puzzle that the golf course is presenting to him, and I, I don't think there's any coincidence. I'm sure Rick has, has has guided him so well as a coach down down that route that they've never lost sight of the fact that this this is this is a game about shots and producing shots and creating shots and. You know, if you, if you don't stray too far away from that, you can, you can have some really, you know, you might not become a major winner like Colin, Colin Morikawa, but the least that will happen is that you'll enjoy the experience.
1: Yeah, I mean, we always say, like, you're spending hundreds of dollars. You've spent hundreds of dollars on equipment, and you're going to be out there for four and a half minimum hours. What are you doing with that time? You know, are you miserable because the ball's not doing what you want? Or are you enjoying the experience of trying to get the ball to do what you want? Asking good questions, seeing what a good shot looks like, allowing your beautiful subconscious brain to organize the movements of your body around the intended image of the shot and in relishing when that all comes together. You know, it's almost like we always see people will watch their bad shots down to see, you know, the whole way they'll hit a good one. They'll go for the quick T pickup and they won't even, you know, they'll turn back to their playing partners because they're ready to get their ego stroked and hear about how what a good shot is but they're not even watching the entirety of the ball flight because it's the hitting of the good shot was about the accolades that came with it. It wasn't about hitting the good shot for the sake of hitting the good shot. And that's, you know, I'm always blown away by tour pros who can make hundreds of millions of dollars and have seemingly their self worth and have to go deal with the media after a bad round still just, they have to be out there for another reason other than money because they've made all the money. money. They don't need any more yeah. money. So they like they have to be out there for other reasons. And that's why they play such good golf is because, you know, look at Phil. You know, Phil's a great mm-hmm. example. I mean, that guy just loves playing golf. You saw him when he was on the match, uh, you know, with Peyton and Tom Brady and Tiger talking, talking through a shot. It's going to land here. It's going to skip here. It's going to come to a stop right here. and It's going to roll out into the hole. Just seeing the whole thing and mm-hmm. loving the fact that he pulled it off you know, and and that's you know got a glimpse into okay, this that's what makes this guy great. You know, not because you know he needs to be his he have his ego stroked. And something else you said too about why are kids you know better putters? Why are we better putters when we're younger? And I I often go back to you know when I'm coaching a junior golfer biting my tongue when they keep hitting it by the hole and saying like, Oh, we Mm. might want to hit it a little softer or be careful not to go far. You know, am I the first person to introduce that fear and doubt into that young golfer's mind? I don't want to be that person, you know, Mm. because Mm. now I can relate as myself as a golfer knowing, okay, yeah, the capture size of the hole does shrink when you hit it that far by, you know, Mm. am I only trying to ease it into the hole? Am I trying to do something? Or I am, you know, enjoying the stroke and enjoying the rolling of the ball on a line and, and enjoying the whole experience. Definitely not the latter. And a lot of times when I'm playing golf, I can tell you that right now.
2: And the thing is, Keith, I think one thing that we that we all are under the illusion of is that there'll always be another round. Mm, the there'll, yeah. there'll always be there'll always be another opportunity, and it's the greatest delusion that human beings have. That there'll always be another season. There'll always be another round of golf. You know, I, one of the one of the um, stories that I, I had in, in the Lost Art of, of playing golf, the second book that we that we did uh, with Gary Nichol and myself, and it was a story about and and, it, and it's over here. I get so many people at seminars coming up to me and, and say that the, 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 this the story had such an impact on them. It was and the story is what we call the Tuesday Boys. It was about the Tuesday Boys. And it was, it was a few years ago, I was, I was doing a corporate day and I, I was at the golf course early, early morning um, before anybody was there. And I thought I'd just go and walk, have, have a walk around. It was one of those really beautiful sort of early UK spring mornings, you know, and the, so the sun's starting to have a little bit of warmth and the golf course is starting to come through. The leaves are coming, you know, the leaves are on the trees. And everything. it was, it was one of those good to be alive mornings. And I was walking out on the golf course and I walked past this hole. And something made me turn around and I came back to the tee. and you know, I'm sure it's the same in the States. You know, if, if you've been, a, a, if you've been anybody important to the golf club, when you, when you pass away, you become a bench, you get it, you get a bench <laughs> on, 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 on the golf course and you get, a, you get a plaque on the bench and I came back and I saw this, I saw this bench and on the bench was a, largest plaque. And it, and it just said simply to the Tuesday boys. Now, obviously we don't need to be Columbo to work out what these guys did. The Tuesday boys must've played golf every Tuesday to, you know, they became known as the Tuesday boys. But what was really poignant for me was I saw this plaque, the Tuesday boys, and there were four names. And then there were four birth dates and four dates when they'd all sadly passed away. And it really struck me. I thought, my goodness, these guys would have played golf every Tuesday, week after week, month after month, year after year, you know they would have got together, shot the breeze, you know, moaned and groaned and all the rest of it, but eventually every single one of them ran out of Tuesdays. You know there were mm-hmm. no more Tuesdays. There were no more Tuesdays left. Wow. And the number of people, the number of people who said to me said that's really resonated with me because you know we said in the book why do why do we think there's going to be another Tuesday or another Monday or another Friday or whatever it may be when we play the game? You know if. If, if, if this can't be the most important round you've ever played because you've got an opportunity to play again, you've been granted the heavens or whatever have granted you this, this opportunity on this day to play this game of golf. My goodness, we should start with a position of just intense gratitude. And this, this is not sort of, you know, left field tree hugging stuff. It's, it's actually, I think, so important to understand and there's a whole science behind this that if you're if you're enjoying positive emotional states in your body bef- before you play, that is the most conducive state to be in to then produce the best golf that you can play. I call it going first. Instead of waiting for golf to make you feel good, how about mm. you decide to feel how about you decide to feel good just because you've been granted the opportunity to play one more time? You know, you think about it when when tiger su- suffered that you know horrific car accident you know he would he would have had many days and many many weeks where he thought he would never play golf again I, i'm i'm sure he, you know that's what he you know, that seems to be the indication you know and at that point he would, he would he would have given anything to hit another golf shot not not to win a major again not to win another tournament but just to go and play another 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 golf shot play another round of golf you know, and thankfully he's on his way back and he's going to, he is going to play again. I'll be a different version of, of the tiger that we know. But you know, it, it is the greatest delusion that we all have that there'll be another Tuesday. You know, the only Tuesday that you're going to, that you're certain of is this one. And we, we wow. missed that it's such a big point.
1: I think that's, I think that is the perfect place to leave off and I uh, want to be conscious of your time and, and just, I mean, really hoping that you'd be uh Generous enough to join us again, because I think we could like we could talk for hours on end about all this sort of stuff. My mind is just like reeling right now with stuff I'd love to ask you about uh, and have some 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 convo with. But, uh, you know, Carl, thanks again. And and where can people find info about the work that you've done, your certification? Um, Obviously, you have your own podcast, so we'll give you an opportunity to kind of plug yourself here.
2: Yeah, no, they've really enjoyed that, guys. You've uh, you've you've asked some really, really, really good questions there that uh, got the conversation flowing. It's always a good indicator of time when you look up and think, my God, there's uh, uh, an hour and (laughs) twenty minutes or so gone, gone there. So, you know, thanks, thanks for thanks for those questions, and I think. You know, it's 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 having forums like this that it's so important that we that we get these ideas out here and, and just and from a sense of not not coming from a sense of I I know and you don't it's 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 a sense of just sharing information and giving people different options to to think about. So um, it feels like we've only played three holes tonight of what, what <laughs> should be an 18, 18 all round, doesn't it? But it does. uh, but yeah, thanks. Thanks for that. Um, if, if people want to find out and they want to become uh, certified Mind Factor coaches, there's a whole bunch of them around the world now, but uh, go to the website, themindfactor.com. Uh, you can do that online or, or we have a once a year training that we've just done this, this last uh, this last month in Manchester in the UK. I do various ones around the world as well. Um, but if you want to buy, if you want to have a look at the, the Lost Art series, there's three now, there's three three books um with gary and myself have said that's it we're not doing any more now it's not going to be like the rocky franchise there's only, there's only <laughs> three, three of the lost art books but the, the 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 web the website for that is uh very simply the lost art of golf.com or you can get the you know you can get the books on on amazon and then you mentioned the brain booster that comes out every uh, every every friday so with uh, some some nice guests on that maybe get yeah I'll, 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 I'll return the favor and get you two guys on there and uh, we can, we can carry, the, carry the conversation on from, uh, and I'll ask the questions next time.
1: Yeah, I speak for Henry when I'd say that'd be awesome.
0: Absolutely. Carl, this was an absolute pleasure. Uh, very refreshing conversation. Uh, the Lost Art series, Keith talked about them uh, to me recently, if you, about a week and a half ago. Uh, I purchased all three of them. I've, I've been reading my way through one of them. Um, fantastic work. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. Um, Your Tuesday story was probably the most depth that I've heard in the game of golf. Um, It it really uh, sparked a sense of appreciation for playing the game, Um, but much deeper than that for, for life in general, appreciating the day, appreciating company and relationships and those that we have loved ones uh, in our life, because you never know when you're going to, when that day is going to come to an end. And so, um, I, I thank you a lot for sharing that story with us and our listeners, and uh, I look forward to having many more conversations in the future. You're definitely somebody who I uh, have put to the top of my list for people to to learn more about and 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 to make a relationship with. So thanks again, and I appreciate you taking the time for us.
2: All right, That's uh, really re- really kind of you to say, and. Uh... You know that uh, these these conversations only, only work if they're if they're done in the right spirit, and you guys have brought a fantastic spirit to this uh, to this session. And you know what what have we done for we've we've shot the breeze for for a, an hour or so, and that's one of the things that, that we don't do enough of on a golf course, is it? So uh, so thanks thanks for the opportunity, and uh, yeah, let's definitely let's let's definitely play the play the rest of these holes that we've not played tonight.
1: Yeah, we will, no doubt about it. Don't worry, I'll uh, I'll be bugging you to come back on. Great. <laughs> right. all right thanks carl appreciate it have a great night my pleasure
2: my pleasure all the best fellas
1: take care